I invite you to turn with me in the Scriptures to Acts chapter 4, continuing our series of sermons on these early chapters of Acts. So last time, two weeks ago, we dealt with verses 1 through 22, where Peter and John are before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. They've been arrested, and they had to give an account of what they did in healing the lame man. But then they are let go, and we pick up the story at verse 23, and our text and the focus of the sermon will be verses 23 through 31. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, this is Psalm 2 then, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So far, our text. In response to the preaching, we'll sing Psalm 2 about the restless nations gathering together against the Lord and His anointed. Church of God, Israel of God, people of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever started something new, a new venture, something big, something good, something weighty, something godly, something important with a lot riding on it, yet something you've never done before? In advance, you will have prayed about it numerous times. You will have consulted with the wise You've made your preparations, and then the day comes when you have to hit the go button, and you do. You're nervous, but excited all at the same time, and things start to get underway. And as things move along in your project, your venture, they're moving along swimmingly, they're moving along fluidly, and they fall, everything falling into place, 
And as momentum picks up, you are feeling thankful, you are feeling joyful, you are feeling optimistic until something goes wrong, until you encounter a setback, resistance of some kind, especially if it's other people telling you that, you know, you never should have started this thing in the first place. You then start second-guessing yourself, or you certainly could. Doubts would easily creep in. You, you, you look around and you, you feel like everyone and everything is against you, so maybe, just maybe, you should throw in the towel. Quit. Maybe this whole thing was just never meant to be. Well, this is the kind of situation that Peter and John find themselves in at the start of our text. The venture that they were busy with was not of their own making, it was that of the ascended King Jesus, who had called them and had appointed them to set about the work of restoring Israel to God, to build up the new Israel in the name of the only Savior, Jesus. And when for the first time they meet opposition, as they have encountered earlier in chapter 4, the question naturally is, what will they do in the face of that resistance? Or the better question really is, what will King Jesus do in the face of that resistance? Well, to answer that question, I bring you this word of the Lord under this theme. As opposition mounts, King Jesus assures His apostles of their calling. He assures them of His calling. We'll see two things. He grants to them a united prayer to Almighty God, and He also grants a unique answer from Almighty God. Our text, verse 23, begins, when they were released. And of course, that refers to Peter and John. As mentioned, those two leading disciples or apostles they were the two who had gone up to the temple the day before to pray, and on their way into the temple, they had healed that lame man who was 40 years old or even more. And then coming out of the temple, there was a great crowd of people wanting to see this healing, wanting to hear an explanation, and so they explained and they proclaimed to the thousands of people who gathered in Solomon's portico that this healing was the work of Jesus the ascended king. And they urged the people to repent of their rebellion, to put their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and salvation of everlasting life. And for doing this, those two apostles were arrested by the Sanhedrin, by the Jewish council. They were questioned. They were warned under threat. We saw that last time. They were warned to never, ever preach or teach in the name of Jesus ever again. And then they were released. So this is the highest court among the Jewish people, among the covenant people of the Lord, the men whom God had set in authority over the Israelites, including the apostles, these authorities had condemned the actions of the apostles, had condemned their venture, had commanded them in no uncertain terms 
that they were never to do that again. They had to quit. Tell me, brothers and sisters, if you were in Peter and John's shoes, if it had been you released on that day from jail, what would you do? Might have been tempting to leave town. Maybe head back to Galilee where they were from to lick your wounds. Might have thought of giving up altogether. I mean, who needs this trouble and strife? You've got the authorities breathing down your neck. Threats of more imprisonment or beatings or worse. Maybe we shouldn't buck the system after all. And it was just the two of them at this point being released, just Peter and John. They were the ones who had caught the brunt of the Sanhedrin's wrath. So it would have been easy to, for the two of them to think that they were unfairly taking the brunt of, of all those, that opposition while the other ten apostles enjoyed their freedom. And on top of that, they might have been thinking, well, how can two fishermen from Galilee stand up against the lawyers and the experts in the law and the 71 officials led by the chief priests who ruled the roost in Jerusalem. I mean, we're just fishermen. The natural thing to experience in that situation would, would have been discouragement, would have been easy to become deflated and to consider packing it in. Yet the two men do not leave town, nor do they feel sorry for themselves and set about licking their wounds, nor do they give up their mission. Instead, the Spirit of Christ in them leads them to return to the rest of the apostles and the disciples. Luke tells us in verse 23, and I, I translate literally, they went to their own. The ESV interprets that to mean their friends. But the original says they went to their own and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Well, who is that? Who are their own? Well, that has to refer at least to the apostles. There may well have been other disciples with them, but the apostles were a group. They had been a group for three years they also were the appointed leaders of the developing church, the new Israel. They were the ones, the apostles, they had authority over the Christian community. So when the two apostles are warned by the Jewish authorities and threatened that they have to quit preaching Christ, it would only be fitting for Peter and John to seek out their fellow apostles and figure this out together. Who else would they turn to to help find their way forward. So they tell everything that's happened to them, to the church authorities, the true leaders of God's true Israel. And how do these leaders then react? I mean, two of your number have just been arrested and threatened. They do not chastise Peter and John. They don't say, how come you weren't more careful? How come you weren't more respectful to the Sanhedrin? They don't criticize them for being too public with their mission, with their preaching, for being too in the face of the Sanhedrin. 
nor are the apostles quaking in fear at the threats that they have breathed out. The first thing that the leaders do when they hear the account of Peter and John is they stop, drop, and pray. That's what Luke says. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. Isn't that a great place to start? That's really the only place to start, isn't it? And to keep returning to, for if the Lord God doesn't help us, if our Savior doesn't provide for us in our hour of need, how are we ever going to help ourselves? We don't have the power. To get that help from God, we need to be there asking it of Him in prayer. And the prayer that they offer here is made in a total unison of heart and mind. Luke emphasizes that in verse 24. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. You could translate, they were of one accord in their prayer. He uses the same description that he used earlier in chapter 1, verse 14, and again in chapter 2, verse 46. These apostles and whatever disciples were there, they were together in their spirits. They were together in their thoughts. The apostles and the believers are convinced that what happened to Peter and John is not a sign from God to quit. It's not a sign from the Almighty that they're on the wrong track, but in fact, it's the opposite sign. The two beleaguered apostles come back to their colleagues and fellow church leaders, and immediately they are supported in what they've done, and they are validated in their efforts. The Sanhedrin, for their part, they had tried to make Peter and John feel like criminals, evildoers, upsetting the peace of Jerusalem. But the true leadership of God's people makes them feel like honorable servants of Christ who have done the sacrificial thing, who have done the right thing in the eyes of God. Can you imagine how encouraging that would have been for Peter and John to get that kind of reception after having been released from jail? What a gift from King Jesus above that the, the leadership of the church is totally backing them. They're totally united together, giving 100% support and joining together in prayer of tremendous justification for all that Peter and John had done. They are totally on board in it together. That's the work of the Spirit in these apostles and fellow disciples. When Christians face opposition from doing what is right in the eyes of God... We, the church, we fellow believers can help them so much by a demonstration of support, by words of encouragement, and especially by praying together with them. Opposition to Christianity, it's already here, isn't it, in our country, in Canada? Let's not stick our heads in the sand, right? We're just coming to the end of Pride Month. What's Pride Month? You might as well call it Rebellion Month. It's celebrating the rebellion of man against the Creator. Celebrating the very opposite of the way God made man and woman.
to interact and to be sexually active within marriage. Pride Month does the opposite. That's rebellion against God. That's rebellion against Jesus Christ. This past week in the States, Roe v. Wade was overturned, right? You all heard the news. We Christians rejoice, right? Finally, there may possibly come some laws in the States that will restrict, to a certain degree anyway, the murder of the unborn in their own mother's wombs, a horror that has been going on for more than 50 years freely throughout the U.S. and here in our own country. We rejoice as Christians. What did our prime minister do? He got in front of the cameras and he was weepy. He was so distressed at this decision which in his mind was the greatest evil of our generation. The Prime Minister of Canada promotes the slaughter of the unborn. Opposition is here. That's just the tip of the iceberg. We're going to feel it more. Individual Christians certainly have experienced it. Whole churches have experienced opposition and, and being, having the government be against them. So when that comes to some of us here at Ancaster Church, when we are made to feel like criminals only for obeying the will of Christ, when we are opposed and denounced in the press and by governing officials, what will we do? Will we stand by our brother and sister? Will we unite with them and support them and love them and even suffer with them? By chapter 5, all these 12 disciples will be together suffering under the whip of the Jews. The group of apostles, says Luke, they prayed together in unison. Probably there was one speaker voicing the prayer, but they were all thinking similar thoughts. They were in full agreement with what was being said. Well, what do they pray Luke gives us the prayer. They use God's own word in Scripture and speak back to Him. They pray it back to Him. Sovereign Lord, they start, who made heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You can recognize those words. They're very familiar from the fourth commandment, which we read earlier this service. So they're picking up the, this, this praise of God. And when God in, in Scripture reveals Himself in a certain way, we're meant to absorb that and to bring that back, to speak that back to God in prayer. We're meant to take that up as part of our thinking and speaking. Just like we've been speaking about in Lord's Day 45 in the afternoon services when we've been going through the Lord's Prayer, the apostles, they begin their prayer with a certain address to God and they couple it with praise. Right? There's that adoration element. But now look at the praise that they choose. You could praise God for all kinds of things, right? And it's good to do that. But this isn't just random praise. That's not haphazard praise. It's praise that fits the situation they're in. The situation is this. The lead apostles have been accosted by the Jewish civil authorities, told to shut down the preaching shut down the teaching about Jesus, basically shut down this upstart church. And the Sanhedrin has the power to do it. 
So the threat is real. But it turns out God has more power to resist it. And that's why they pray, invoking God's power, Sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in the heavens and the earth and the seas. That's what we do, brothers and sisters, when we are feeling weak and vulnerable and under threat, when human authorities are oppressing you for your Christian beliefs and practices, then how comforting and assuring it is to remind ourselves that our God is totally in control. You see, when we praise God, we get strengthened. We get built up. Yes, He gets the glory, but we get the strengthening of faith because in this case, He is the ruler supreme. He's the creator of all things, and no opposition can possibly stand in His way. That's the upshot of this address. The apostles, they're, they're strengthening themselves by means of the Word of God, and they continue on this theme by quoting Psalm 2, which we read Notice how they interpret Psalm 2 in a fully Christ-centered way. Psalm 2 is about Jesus. All the Psalms are about Jesus. These words of David in Psalm 2, they had a first application to David in his own time, but like all the Psalms, his words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, they point forward to the experiences of Jesus Christ. And if you were to look at the bottom of your page in the Bible, in the book of Acts, and just page back from chapter 4 to chapter 3, chapter 2, chapter 1, you would see that Luke has quoted the book of Psalms now five times, all pointing toward Jesus Christ. The Psalms speak of Christ, if there was any doubt. So what Jesus, the point of their prayer now is what Jesus experienced in His suffering and death on the cross, that was precisely what was prophesied about in Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, David describes Gentile nations plotting against God's anointed king over Israel. So in David's original circumstance, that would have referred to the Nations opposing him, like the Philistines and the Moabites and the Syrians and perhaps a few others. But David is a type of Christ. We know that from other parts of the Bible. God, in His infathomable wisdom, designed history, you see, to teach us lessons. The very flow of history in and around David and his life and what happened to David all of that would later happen to Jesus only in a fuller way. So the life of David is a microcosm pointing forward to the life of Christ in all of its aspects. What David experienced was meant to teach us what the Messiah would experience. And Psalm 2 describes opposition of the highest order, a great opposition of the kings and the rulers of the Gentiles. And all of this, says the apostles, say the apostles in our text, all of this actually happened to Jesus, and they describe Him as your holy servant Jesus, whom God anointed, verse 27. And then in their prayer, they list the Gentile coalition, King Herod. Who is King Herod? Pastor Clarence mentioned it last week. King Herod was king of the Edomites. 
That was one of the Gentile peoples that was always against the Jewish people. King of the Edomites, he was ruler in Jerusalem. He was the oppressive ruler over the Jews, one of the oppressive rulers. But there was also the Roman governor Pontius Pilate mentioned here. Then they mentioned the Gentiles. So we can think of the Roman soldiers who were commanded by Pilate to, to actually do the crucifying work, put Jesus on the cross. And then the apostles add something to this list of conspirators that is not in Psalm 2, something David would not have expected. Verse 27 in this list, and the peoples of Israel. That's the real kicker here. The peoples of Israel have joined the hostile, gentle rulers to do what? to turn on Yahweh, to turn and attack the anointed of the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Savior sent from Yahweh for His people. How can this be that the people of Israel would do that? Well, what we're seeing in our text, brothers and sisters, and, and as we move along in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament, we see here a clear emergence of the false church. The Jewish people had long been the church. They, since the days that they started to be a nation, they were the church of God. They had been God's covenant people from ancient times. But now, after having rebelled against God so consistently for hundreds of years and having added to all their transgressions, not only the murder of the Messiah, but now the continued persecution of the Messiah's church, the Jewish church is becoming, fast becoming, hardened, unceasing enemies of Jesus. And what the Lord Jesus Himself describes them as, Revelation 2 and chapter 3 as well, twice He says, these people are the synagogue of Satan. Synagogue of Satan. As we confess in Article 29 of the Belgic Confession, one of the marks of the false church is that it sets itself in opposition to the true church, to true Israel, and it opposes and persecutes it. And as you read through the New Testament, some of the most awful, fiercest persecution of the true believers comes at the hand of the false church. And in the New Testament times, that was the Jews. But in later history, it's the same. You can think of the Roman Catholic persecution of the Protestant believers and how horrendous that was in the days of the Reformation. So, Acts 3, Acts 4 sees the, the crystallization, you could say, of the false church in hatred against Christ and His people. Yet all of this, it should not shock or alarm us overmuch. We should expect the devil to attack the church from inside and from outside, false church and false believer and unbeliever from the outside. We should expect Satan to pull out all the stops 
because he's trying to destroy what he hates, the church of Christ. And as we expect that opposition, we should also firmly and quietly expect and trust that Almighty King Jesus will preserve His church despite those attacks. Just like He said in Matthew 18, though the gates of hell attack my church, they shall not overcome. That's what we see also through the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. For notice, as this prayer unfolds, the apostles, they are already experiencing a great deal of assurance in the midst of their trial. And that assurance comes from knowing the Scriptures, understanding how it uniquely applies to Jesus Christ in His earthly ministry, and further, knowing that all that's taking place to them, happening to them, is part and parcel of God's almighty eternal plan. Just like we sang from Psalm 33, God's counsel and plan stands forever. Well, how is it that these twelve apostles would have known that, would have understood Psalm 2 as referring to and pointing to Jesus Christ? How is it that they could be so sure that Pilate and Herod and the Jewish peoples were actually fulfilling the conspiracy of Psalm 2? Well, it can only be by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit of Christ living in them. Right? The, the ascended Christ had sent His Spirit to fill the apostles, so the Spirit is giving them this understanding. He has opened their eyes to grasp Scripture, and there in the Word of God they found their anchor in the midst of the storm they were experiencing. And as they pray back to God His words in Scripture, they grasp the very thing that they are living through was, is precisely the very thing foretold hundreds of years earlier. And in that alone, Jesus is answering their prayer. They will ask for boldness to continue preaching, but underneath that boldness is a clear and sure understanding that Christ is on high as King, that everything that happened to Him on the earth and all that's happening now was long before predestined by God. They emphasize that at verse 28. God, You have predestined to do whatever Your hand and Your plan had predestined to take place. So, in other words, brothers and sisters, the, the apostles, after con being confronted by the Sanhedrin, they regroup and they realize everything that we've experienced, everything that's gone on, is exactly according to plan. The devil and the Gentiles and even the corrupt rulers of Israel, they're trying to attack the anointed, the Messiah. They're trying to bring down His kingdom, but God planned for that. Psalm 2, this was no surprise. Persecution is no surprise to God, and it should be no surprise to us. Remember what Jesus said, John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, 
but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And he goes on, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. When the church obeys God and does the will of King Jesus, we can expect the world to react the same way to us as it did to him. And that means that the outcome of this opposition is also 100% assured. You see, Psalm 2, it's not a psalm meant to, to scare us. Sounds a little scary at the beginning, all this opposition. But it's actually a psalm meant to instill confidence in us, in those who belong to Jesus the Messiah, and us who feel the anger and the heat of His enemies. Yes, that opposition will be there, but what does the Lord do, says Psalm 2? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them, those kings and rulers, He holds them in derision. I have set my Son on my holy hill, on, his, on my mountain, over my people. I've given Him the rod of iron to rule all the nations of the earth. I've even given Him the nations of the earth as His heritage. The kings of the earth, they think they can attack and overcome, but the truth is they will never overpower the will of Yahweh. They cannot overpower the strength and the will of my Son, King Jesus. Psalm 2 warns the kings and the rulers of the world, kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Bow, says Yahweh, bow in repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a call to every prime minister, every president, every queen or king or whatever head of state there is in the whole world, for if they respond to that call, there is hope for them. For the simple, profound, unalterable, beautiful truth is this. God's plan, God's plan, it ends only one way. Jesus wins. He wins everything, the whole enchilada. The kingdom is His. The power and the glory is His. It does not belong to the devil. It does not belong to any human ruler. And if the human rulers don't get on board with King Jesus, they will be punished forever. They will perish in the way. You see, Psalm 2 is a very dear psalm to Christians because it's a bold prediction of Christ's ultimate victory and the, the coming of His kingdom in full glory. And in that same line, the apostles, their request of God now in their prayer to give them continued boldness in their preaching. We saw how Peter and John were already bold in front of the Sanhedrin. But you know, when opposition and criticism mounts, especially from authorities, it's very easy to, to lose your nerve, to step back, sit down, be quiet. It would be a strong temptation to roll over and stop proclaiming what the world doesn't want to hear. May that never, ever be the case among us, beloved. Let's be sure that what we preach and teach from this pulpit, in the catechism room down the hall, in our homes, from our classrooms, conversation to conversation, let it be nothing else than the pure Word of King Jesus. And let's put it out there for all the world to hear. 
and not be afraid. Not be afraid of bad press. Not be afraid of slander from whatever media. Not be afraid of arrest or fines or imprisonment. That may well be part of God's plan for us. But the end of the story will certainly be victory and glory and honor when Christ comes back in His kingdom in its glory. Look at what the apostles ask of God in this prayer. They don't ask for protection. Remarkable, eh? They, they don't ask to be kept from imprisonment or worse. They basically ask along these lines, Lord, keep doing through us what you've already been doing through us. What's that? Two things they ask for. Continue to make us bold in the preaching. Don't let us capitulate to fear. Number two, also, O God, stretch out your hand to continue to heal and perform signs of wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus, just like you've been doing. Verse 30. In other words, Lord, keep your mission going full throttle. Almighty God, do not let this opposition slow you down, but bless us to press on with the task you've given us to do. And the Lord heard that prayer, like He hears all prayers made in faith, and He answers their prayer in a unique way. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the Word of God in boldness. God's first reply was to shake the building they were in. Can you imagine? Imagine if this building started to shake. If you've ever been in an earthquake, some of us have experienced minor ones, that's a very unsettling experience, isn't it? It, it, it immediately unseats you. It makes you feel small, makes you feel insignificant. It brings a, a creeping sense of fear if the earth starts shaking beneath your feet. But here, the only fear that it brings is fear of the Lord. That healthy, reverential fear of the Lord. For why does God send an earthquake and shake the building? Well, from the Scriptures, the apostles knew that God sometimes in certain special occasions made His presence known by shaking things. Like when God appeared before His nation Israel after bringing them out of Egypt, when He appeared to them for the first time on Mount Sinai, God shook Mount Sinai. It quaked. And as we sang from Psalm 114, God shook the hills as He led His people Israel into their homeland, Canaan. And Isaiah, in chapter 6 of his book, records in his vision of heaven that the temple thresholds shook because the Holy One was present. So too, the apostles connect the dots, the quaking of the building. It's meant to impress upon their minds and hearts in no uncertain terms that that sovereign Lord they had just called upon, the, the same Creator of the heavens and the earth and all that's in them, that powerful God is right there. 
with them. And the one who has the power to shake the earth beneath their feet certainly has the power to help them withstand whatever opposition. So you don't need to be afraid, apostles. You don't need to be afraid, disciples. You don't need to be afraid or discouraged, Christians of Ancaster. Because the same sovereign Lord is with us as He was there in Jerusalem, shaking the building with the apostles. You know, whatever hesitation or doubt or question marks they may have had, we don't know. Whatever they may have had coming out of that courtroom, the apostles are now doubly assured, and they are doubly bold, and they are doubly filled with the Spirit to do their work now doubly without fear of the enemy. They just go for it. And isn't that doubly encouraging for us today? God may not shake our church building when we pray. And God has not given us the specific power to work wonders and healings and miracles. Those things were appropriate for those times in God's unfolding plan. But God has promised us certain things. He has promised to fill us with His Spirit every time we ask so that we can carry on with the task we've been given with determination and boldness and fearlessness. We already know the end of the story, and it's a very good ending. It's the best ending imaginable, right? So let's set about our calling. Let's set about our task with joy and gladness, united together. Let's do this together in support of one another over against whatever opposition may come. Let's do this together, come what may. Amen.